You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993, and on Friday, a message he delivered at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Now, here is Tony Evans on Today in the Word Radio. Good morning. And I am extremely gratuitous for this unique privilege to be at one of the, the great models of biblical Christianity in the sphere of education that exists in our contemporary society, the movie, Moody Bible Institute, to be with a lot of friends who I have come to know here, and to be with my very close, my very good friend, Dr. Stoll. And so I'm honored to be here on your campus this week and trust that my words will be used by God to encourage us all to be enriched spiritually as we seek to serve him. Shall we pray? Father, allow my thoughts today to be clear and clarion so that the truth of God will resonate from me and through me to your most precious flock here at the Moody Bible Institute this week. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Spiritual maturity is guaranteed, but it is not automatic. In order for any of us to become all that God has redeemed us to be, he has provided everything necessary to get there, but not without cooperation from us. You do not simply arrive at being the choice man or woman of God that you desire to be or that God desires you to be. Not like the farmer who was, who had never been to a big city before and he finally got his opportunity to bring he and his family to a great big metropolitan area and they were just overwhelmed with all that they had saw and One of the first things that they came upon was a mall, and this was unlike anything they'd ever seen. The wife went crazy going from store to store, looking at all the the different things that the big city had to offer. The father and his son noticed right down the street from the mall a huge bank, and they'd never seen a depository such as this before, and they wandered in. After looking around, being awestruck, they noticed the vault in the corner, a huge vault, and they didn't know what it was, but they saw this huge steel compartment. And as they just observed it, they noticed that a very old, old woman slowly moved and went into inside the vault. About three minutes later, this young, 20-year-old, well-figured, beautiful girl came out of the vault. Father said to his son, Boy, go get your mother and let's send her into this machine. (laughs) Many of us treat spiritual living that way. We think you kind of come in and get spit out. All that God wants us to be. But it's just not that easy. And any of us who have desired to walk with God have felt the, the pain and the pressure and the resistance of trying to grow and mature in our faith. The good news this morning and throughout the week that I would like to share with you is that all you need to become all that God has redeemed you to be, you already have. 
God has in his sufficiency more than aptly supplied you with everything you need. However, even though that supply is full and plenteous, its benefit is not automatic. We have a responsibility to cooperate with the provision of God, comprehensive though they might be. There is no place that states the comprehensive nature of God's provision for us to be all that we can be. Then Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of scriptures because it, it emanates in a discussion on the magnificent, marvelous, magnitudious grace of God that God has provided us in this term called grace, the sufficient supply. And I hope that as we go through these four days together, that supply of grace and our responsibility to it will capture our hearts so that we live it out in our day-to-day experience. During the 50s, one of the great TV shows that I used to watch as a boy was a program called The Millionaire. And in this program, there would be this benefactor who would hand out a million dollars every week to some unsuspecting soul. And the interest of the program was seeing how people would react and would respond to this bountiful gift. Mark Anthony was the emissary on behalf of the billionaire whose face you never saw, who you could only see the back of his head as he spoke and gave instructions to Mark Anthony, his mediator, to bring the million dollars to whoever was elected that week to receive it. And so some soul being elected would be taken. Now some people... Some people rejected it. Other people accepted it with reservation. Other people uh, welcomed it. Some people misused it, abused it, spent it, wasted it, while other people invested it and benefited from it. But it was always an interesting program to find out how people would use so bountiful a gift. God is our great benefactor. His face we cannot see, but he has sent his representative, Jesus Christ, to make available the bountiful wealth of God to those of us who have been selected to receive it. But the very interesting thing about living our lives is how we will use it, how we will abuse it, how we will welcome it, how we will invest it. Paul calls this bountiful gift grace. He establishes in these first ten verses the most concise yet comprehensive statement about the grace of God that leads us to spiritual maturity. He first of all tells us our need for grace in the first three verses by telling us how bad off we really were outside of Christ. He gives us a divine coroner's report. He says you were dead. You were dead in a graveyard called trespasses and sins. Two Greek words that have a different nuance, one having to do with straying out of the way, trespass, the other having to do with missing the mark. But either way, we fell short of the standard. We were without the life of God. Some of us were pretty and dead, others of us were ugly and dead. Some of us were tall and dead, others of us short and dead, black and dead, white and dead, but dead and dead we were. That is without the life of God. And his point is you can't appreciate the grace of God without the backdrop of our deadness. I am a connoisseur of uh, horror flicks. I love a good horror movie, particularly the older ones, because uh, they had a, a bite about them that was particularly interesting. And 
they had a few that I can remember pretty well, like Night of the Living Dead. In Night of the Living Dead, these, uh, these uh, zombies would come out at night, and they would be very, very dead, yet very, very functional. Uh, there's a contemporary song about a year ago in the Rhythm and Blues that says, the freaks come out at night. Well, that's precisely what happened in the Night of the Living Dead. And so, so these zombies would come and they would start moving, bringing about havoc and catastrophe as they rose out of their graves and began to monopolize the town or society in which they were a part. That is precisely what the Bible declares men are outside of Jesus Christ zombies, walking dead people, because he says, not only were you dead, but in this deadness, verse 2, you formerly walked. So you have the ability, I have the ability as dead people to function and to wreak havoc in the world because we walk according to the course of this age, to the prince of the power of the air. We, we submitted, verse 3, to the lust of our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil was the environment of our deadness. We were without the life of God. And as a result, we were hopeless, helpless, without any ability to satisfy the demands of a holy God. Unfortunately, not even recognizing our deadness because we were fooled by our functioning. We did not understand that the life of God was empty. You know, people's deadness is uh, something that uh, some people have trouble grasping. You know, a few years ago, some years ago, when they had funerals, they were pretty crude. You'd put a, you'd put a cadaver or corpse in a coffin, a wooden box, wide at the top, narrow at the bottom, put it in a horse-drawn carriage, take it to the burial site, wrap rope around the top, rope around the bottom, put it down inside the grave, uh, and all would be done. But when you die today, you don't die like that. Today, when you die, you die in style. You don't go in a coffin, you go in a bronze casket. It's lined with linen. You've always wanted to put your head on a satin pillar, you got it. It's a satin pillar there for you to rest on. Today, funeral parlors hire professional beauticians to dress you, to make up your hair, to give your hair cut if you're a male, to put makeup on your face, to paint your fingernails if you're a woman, to put lipstick on your lips. Fact is, I've seen some people look better dead than they ever looked alive. Uh, uh, funeral homes have uh, been, uh, uh, been really upgraded. Always wanting to ride in a limousine? You got it. There's a limousine park right in front of the church. In fact, you lead a fleet of limousines that particular day with motorcyclists out in front, traffic pulling over because you're riding by with the ability to go through uh, red lights. And so you wind up at the cemetery. They don't put ropes around you anymore. They put nickel-plated machines that ease you on down so as not to disturb your, descents, uh, your descending six feet under. But whether it's coffins or caskets, horse-drawn carriages or limousines, dead is still dead. You're without life. And the Bible declares that that was the scenario every person in this room was faced with. And without the understanding and the realization of the backdrop of what that means, then you can never really appreciate the glory of the grace of God. If for some reason we think we were okay in our deadness, then we will never recognize, appreciate, and benefit from the provisions of God's magnificent, magnificent grace. But then he introduces two words that can change any situation, but God. Two words that can make dead people live, but God. Two words that can make dead marriages alive again, 
but God. Two words that can take people who have become overwhelmed by sin and release them. But God. And taking the word for love and making it a noun and a verb in the same verse saying that God was rich in mercy because of the great love noun with which he loved us verb. In other words, that God in his love noun took action based on his heartbeat. He was able to mix his heart and his feet in such a way so as to respond to our deadness, totally motivated by his own action. God did something about the scenario of our deadness and in order to appreciate grace you have to understand it is something that he did not have to do and something that we didn't even know we needed because we in fact were dead. The total initiative for who we were saved to become was taken by God at a time when we didn't even know the option was there to become it. For the Bible declares God demonstrated noun love His love toward us while we were yet sinners, Christ died. When we didn't even know we were sick, the doctor came with the medicine. He says, that is what occurred, but God, being rich in this mercy and in this grace, snatched us. An old Indian was asked one day to explain his conversion. He didn't have a Moody Bible Institute to teach him how to put it in proper doctrinal formula But he reached down and picked up a leaf and uh, saw a worm and picked up a worm and put it on the leaf and someone handed him a match and he lit the leaf with the worm in the center. And as the leaf began to burn and close in on the worm, just before it engulfed the worm, he blew out the fire, looked to those who were questioning him and said, me worm. And that is precisely what God did. When we were engulfed in fire and didn't even know disaster was awaiting around the corner, God reached in and blew out the flames. But God, being rich in mercy, he's rich because he didn't have to do it. The great doctrine of election is that you were chosen to be part of his family. I know we've got different theological extremes. You've got the hyper-Calvinist who say that God has only provided for those who are elect. And then you have the Arminians who say it's really up to you and not God. And then you have my view, the correct view. (laughs) Let's say, for example, there are 1,400 people in here. And let's say I go out and I buy 1,400 coats because I want each of you to have the refreshment of a Coca-Cola, you need the real thing here at Moody Bible Institute. And so I go out and I buy me 1,400 Cokes and it takes me all of my money to pay the price for the Cokes in order to bring you refreshment and satisfaction and they are available immediately at the dismissal of this meeting. The meeting is dismissed, however, no one takes my Coke for various reasons. Others say I like Sprite. Some say, I like 7-Up, I, I, I am on a diet, there's too much acidity in Coke, and you give me all kind of excuses as to why you don't want my Coke. As a result of that, everybody leaves and I'm stuck with 1,400 Cokes that I have paid all of my money to purchase for people who have not recognized the high price tag it cost me to provide them this refreshment. 
I am not about to let my cokes go to waste nor my investment. And so I go out into the hall and I call 100 of you back. I call 100 of you back. I sit you down on the front row and I go into more coke detail with you. I explain to you how this coke is going to satisfy you as it goes down, how it's going to refresh you. I go into the details, how it's going to invigorate you, how the sugar is going to keep you awake in your next class. I go into great depth about the benefits of the coke and I irresistibly woo you to one coke. So that 100 of my 1,400 cokes are now taken. I have not been unfair to the other 1,300 people because I made them a legitimate offer. But what I have done is guaranteed that some of my cokes are taken. You can never brag that you got a coke because the only reason you got it is because I called you back. But the others who don't get it can never blame me because I gave them the opportunity to get it. Therefore, I am to get all the credit and none of the blame for the provision that cost me everything I had to give you the refreshment that you have. You're here today because God called you back without being unfair to everybody else in the world. That's the grace of God. And that deserves a response. One day I came out from my uh, bedroom in the middle of the night and I noticed some roaches on my counter. Now I have a basic roach philosophy. The only good roach is a dead roach. And so I, I destroyed those roaches. I'm only saying this because my wife's not here. She wouldn't want me to say with her here there was roaches in our house. But, uh, but I came home the next day and evidently one of those roaches I didn't hit quite right because my son was playing with it. He had the roach crawling all up on his hands, through his fingers, all up on his arm, because he felt sorry for this roach I didn't hit quite right. And I said, boy, you done lost your mind. Evans's don't play with roaches. Hey, brother, you got a roach with you right there? What's going on? <laughs> He's playing with this roach and having a great time. He said, Dad, this roach was hurt, and I wanted to save it. That's you and me. What a roach is to our view of cleanliness, sin is to God's view of holiness, and we deserve the wrath of God. But God picked up the roach and played with it. Why? Well, he explains. In fact, he goes into more detail. When we were dead, he says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. Now, generally, when this passage is preached, it's preached in terms of people getting saved. That's not his point. The people he's writing are already saved, and you were dead. He is not trying to explain in this passage how sinners become saints. He's trying to explain to saints how much grace of God has been provided them 
for the process of being what God has redeemed them to be. This is not an evangelistic passage, although it has that that application. He says the point is not only were you redeemed, saved, that's verse 5, but he says you've been raised up with him in heavenly places. You are now seated alongside of Jesus Christ right now in a place called heavenly places. Heavenly places, that's not heaven. Because the Bible says that Christ is in heavenly places, our blessings are in heavenly places, the angels are in heavenly places, but it also says in chapter 6, the devil is in heavenly places. Heavenly places is like Capitol Hill. It's a sphere of legislation. It is where God's team and the opposing team uh, legislate the universe. It's called spiritual warfare. That's why Satan and his government is said to exist in heavenly places. But just as the president has the power of veto, Jesus Christ has the power of veto so that anything that comes from the legislation of hell can be vetoed by the president of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you are now seated with him in this capital hill of heaven. In this place of spiritual activity, you are seated with him, the person who holds the veto. You are seated with the one who not only won your salvation, but who is going to win everything else for you. He is seated with you, or better yet, you are seated with him. As you, as you all know, the Dallas Cowboys are the champions of, you know, NFL football. You do know that, don't you? Not the Chicago Bears, the Dallas Cowboys. We are praying for the Bears in Dallas. But when we won the Super Bowl, you could go anywhere in Dallas, and what you would hear is people saying, We won! What do you mean, we won? We weren't on the field. We didn't get hit or hit anybody. What do you mean, we won? Well, see, to live in Dallas means that the Dallas Cowboys are more than the football team, they're representative of the city. So that when they won, we won. We identified with their victory and became a participant in it so that we could claim it as our own even though we did not handle the football, we did not rough it up with the opposition, we bear the benefit of their win. Jesus Christ won on Calvary and as a result, you and I get the benefit of that victory so that as you live your life in the spiritual zone, you can say, we won. Because I am seated with him. I am identified with his victory because his grace not only saves me, it supplies me with all the rights and privileges that come with my relationship with him. As chaplain of the Dallas Mavericks, I do a a game once a week, a chapel for them once a week, a 15-minute Bible study. And uh, when I do that, they give me six tickets to go to the game. If my family doesn't go, I'll call up five other guys from the church and I'll say, well, you, do you want to go to the game with me? They'll say, yeah, well, sure. And so I say, don't drive, because if you drive, you're going to have to pay $5 a ticket. If you pay $5 a ticket, uh, uh, then each of you driving, that's going to add up. Plus, you have to park a long way away. I say, instead, come with me. Because if you come with me, I have a VIP parking pass in the parking lot A, which is the VIP parking lot, which is located 20 steps from the front door. And when I drive up against the gate, he's not going to look at you, the the attendant. He's going to look at me. And when he sees me, he will accept you, not because he knows you, but because he knows me and you're with me. 
So by virtue of being with me, you get to park 20 steps from the front door in parking lot A, not because you are a VIP, but because you're with a VIP. And when we get out of the car, we're going to go through the front door, but we're not going to go through the general public front door. We're going to go through the private front door, the front door that Michael Jordan goes through, Akeem Olajuwon goes through, Isaiah Thomas goes through, the front door where the, uh, the players go through, but also the front door that I go through and that now you go through, not because the officer will know you, but because the officer will know me, but because he knows me, he will accept you. Then when we go inside, there will be an elevator. When we come to the elevator, there will be an officer. Only VIPs can get on that elevator. I will get on that elevator, but if you're with me, you get on that elevator too. Not because the cop knows you, but because he knows me. And by virtue of the fact you're with me, you get the right, you get that VIP treatment. When we go down the elevator, there's a five-course meal that they prepare for VIPs. You get to eat that day, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. But because you are with me, you get the rights and privileges of a free meal because you have identified with me. Therefore, what's mine is yours. When the national anthem begins to play, we will not have to go back upstairs. There's an underground tunnel. When the Mavericks come out, we will line up behind them. We will go down the tunnel. We will pass all the policemen that are on the floor. We will go down the tunnel, be so close to the team, people will think we're on the payroll. And the reason you will be able to do that is not because of who you are, but because of who I am. By virtue of who I am, they will let you in because of who you are. When we get there, I know you don't want to sit in the cheap seats, you don't want to be high in the nosebleed section, but you don't have to worry about that. Why? You with me. And my tickets are on the front row that you can almost reach out and touch the players as they run by, and you get the most expensive seats in the house, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. When the game is over and everybody goes to their different locations, we're going to chill out, cool down, take it easy, we're not in a hurry, because we're going to go out that private tunnel, up that private elevator, out that private door, to that private lot, get in my car, be halfway home, before most people have even gotten out of the parking lot, and that whole activity will have occurred, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. Jesus Christ right now is saying you are seated with me in high places you are with me and by virtue of your identity for, with me what's mine is yours because of who I am I transfer it to you you get in on who I am what I have because I have not only saved you I have seated you I have seated you with me in heavenly places you get the rights and privileges and benefits the beauty of our salvation is that the grace of God has bountifully supplied us with everything we need to be all we were meant to be if we will cooperate but it is not automatic even though it is guaranteed he says in order that he might show show off the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus God wants to show off now some people get upset that God likes showing off but God is a show off it's called glory glory means to show off put on display manifest Strut your stuff. That's glory. Now the reason why God has to glorify himself is that there is nothing greater than himself to which he could ascribe glory. And since there is nothing greater to him than himself to which he can ascribe glory, he has to be satisfied to limit himself to himself for there is nothing greater than himself to which he can appeal. But that is not true of us. There is someone greater than us, God, so therefore we must ascribe glory to him. And so he packages it all together and says, by grace have you been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. This is a divine ball game, folks. Not according to works so that nobody will be able to say we did it, didn't we? There will be no collectivity in this deal. This is God's deal. Not only for your salvation, but for your sanctification. It's God's deal. 
and he will not allow it to happen, he will not only he will not only not allow you to become a Christian, he won't allow you to become a successful Christian unless he gets all the credit for it. All of it. I used to be a water safety instructor 20 years and 20 pounds ago. A water safety instructor is someone who trains lifeguards. You're a lifeguard and then you graduate up to become a water safety instructor. On one occasion, when I was teaching a group of lifeguards in a pool setting, a man began to drown. Of course, being the instructor for the lifeguard, they all looked at me to save him. So I dove out into the water, freestyled out to him, came up about four feet from him and pulled back to tread water and to assess the situation. It became apparent to me very quickly that this guy is about 6'4", 300 pounds. Now, my mama ain't raised no dummy. I look out at this brother and say, hey, uh, you know, ain't, ain't no use in two of us dying. Uh, the guy is fighting for his life. His hands are swinging wildly. And, of course, he's fighting, begging me to grab him. To which I said, stop fighting. I cannot save you if you're going to insist on saving yourself. That's what I meant. Stop fighting. If he would have gotten his tree trunk arms around me, there would have been two dead people in the pool. I said, stop fighting. But of course, when people are drowning, they panic. They go wild. And so he kept fighting and, and gurgling at the mouth and his eyes get, got bloodshot. And he, he stared at me and I just kept back, kept treading water. And I could tell by the way he was look, looking at me, he was saying, why won't you help me? The answer was simple. I could not and would not help him unless he let me do the whole thing. As long as he was insisting on being part of the salvific experience himself, I was not about to be a part of it. But it came a point where he had to stop trying. He was just out of gas, waterlogged, and he had resigned himself. He couldn't. It was at that point that he began going down and saw that there was no more ability in himself to pull it off, that I went behind him, put my arm under his chin, put my elbow between his shoulder blades, put him in a fireman carry, put him on my hip, and began to pull him sideways as I brought him to the deck. We got him up on the deck, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He began coughing, spitting up water. When he came to himself, he looked at me, and his first words were, Thank you, for saving me. God has provided the means for your comprehensive salvation constructed in such a way that when he gets you up on the deck, the only thing you'll ever be able to say is, thank you for saving me. It was you who provided all this. But why? One final point. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, verse 10 says, for good works, which he hath already created that we should walk in them. Grace continues in Christian living. He says, not only are you saved by grace, but we are his workmanship. Whatever ministry you wind up with, whatever accomplishments you have, it is because of him. We are his workmanship. That Greek word means masterpiece. It's like saying Handel's Messiah or, 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 or that's a Da Vinci or, 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 or that's, that's, that's Mozart. 
whenever you have a great, great artistic rendering, they not only call the, call the uh, art, the rendering what it is, but they put the author's name in front of it so you know who produced it. We are God's masterpieces. He is formulating us into what he wants us to be. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And that's why you're studying here. You want to live out that purpose. He calls that purpose good works. And by the way, good works are not the same as good things. Sinners can do good things. Only saints can do good works. Good works are the application of scripture to the accomplishment of the glory of God through the ministry that God has given us. That's good work. Sinners can't do that. And then he says in closing, which God hath prepared beforehand. So even the good works that he wants you to do, he's already created. So you can't even get credit for that. You can't even get credit for the ideas you come up with. Because the ideas were created before you thought them. So that we should simply execute what he provides. My point today is very simply this. All you need to be all God wants you to be, you already have it. That's the supply of grace, not only for saving you, but for sanctifying and sending you. As a boy growing up in inner city Baltimore, one of the things we did every Saturday was play in the fire hydrant. Every Saturday afternoon, the fire marshal would come around to flush out the little hydrant. And water would gush out of the hydrant. Something always bothered me as a kid. We couldn't in those days get to swimming pools. Most of the swimming pools in our community or in our area were segregated and, and blacks weren't allowed to go into them. So we swam in the fire hydrant. And we just let the water run and we just played in it. But I didn't understand how that three-foot pipe could produce all that water. That bothered me. Water be coming out this bad boy for... And I'm looking at this thing, this big around, this high, and the water won't stop coming out of it. How could that little pipe hold all that water? I went home to my daddy. I said, Daddy, I don't understand how all that water can be in that pipe. My daddy said, Son, there's no water in that pipe. He said, The water's in the dam. Underneath the ground, there is a connection that connects the dam with the pipe. When the release valve is set, set. The water from the dam comes through the pipe and flushes out of the hydrant. That's why the water keeps on coming. Because while there's no water in the pipe, there's more water than you'll ever need in the dam. This morning, we're a bunch of pipes, a bunch of hydrants. We don't have anything to offer. But if we know Jesus Christ, we're connected with a dam. And that's got more grace than you can ever use. The fact is, it's going to take eternity to use it up. So what must you do? Make sure the valve is working. Talk to you about that tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week in 1993. 
Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative Radio Program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast